sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Story. Rumor and innuendo, you've heard about your favorite bands and songs. We're here to destroy it. My name is Brian. I'm Murdoch. So this show is interactive. You can get involved at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can get involved with your cash at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash stories. But get involved for free, too, if you want. Wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And I've got a hot one. You ready for this? A hot one? Is it? Is it hot? Is it a telegram? It's a telegram. Oh, it's across the wire. You'll see here. Okay. Uh, so this is from Art in Utah. Art is, is listening in Utah. Art, thank you for listening. Uh, hey, Art. Art says, "Thanks for listening, Art." I have been list. I have been catching up on all your episodes. I just listened to episode thirty-five. And it just brought out these memories of my experience with Iron Butterfly. Now, episode 35 is Iron Butterfly versus Science. It's a crazy story. Fascinating. Fascinating. A little bit of true crime, a little bit of paranoia. Uh, Who really knows what happened? I highly recommend it. But, uh, okay, so he says he just listened to that, and it brought up back memories of my experience with Iron Butterfly. Monday, he remembers it's a Monday, which is crazy. Monday, the 25th of January, 1971. (laughs) I was 20 years old. Art's a writer. Let me just tell you, this is great. Uh, I was a missionary in Copenhagen, Denmark. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, that's right. So he's in Utah. So he's the Church of Latter-day Saints. And he's in Copenhagen. Oh my gosh, what a what a swinging place to be, buddy. <laughs> so right? I'd heard that Iron oh. Butterfly was performing in a concert hall really close to our apartment, and I had to see them. I, I'd first heard them in 1968 on American Bandstand when they performed Anagata Davida, and I went out and bought the album immediately. The this is my favorite part of the, the letter. The opening band was Yes, and I don't remember <laughs> anything about them. That's literally all he says about Yes. It's really weird when you when you see an act like that and you're like, meh, and and they just come and go and you're like, oh, that band. I've had a few experiences like that where like later somebody will be like, oh, yeah, on that tour, you know, so-and-so opened it. I'm like, yeah, I saw that. And I remember not thinking it was great or I don't remember anything about it, even though, you know, now they're they've overshadowed the other. But he says the hall probably held no more than two to three thousand people. And by the time. Iron Butterfly started to play. Everyone was passing marijuana up and down the aisles, and stoned youths were airplane dancing in front of the stage. Wait, what did are they were they stone youths? Youths, <laughs> stone youths, stone youths, stone youths. What a great show to see! My they gosh, started dude. playing and I got a Davida, and the crowd was wild. Five minutes in, the drummer, I believe it was Bruce Morse at the time begins the drum solo, and the rest of the band puts down their instruments and walks off the stage. After a few minutes, a couple of them come back on stage and take the drummer's T-shirt off while he's playing, apparently, and someone brings a pitcher of beer and proceeds to pour it down his throat. All the while, the guy never misses a beat. Art wraps up by saying, I have some pictures somewhere, but the only thing I can find is the ticket stub. P.S., I love the show. <laughs> wow, what a great, what a great freaking story! Oh too. my god, dude, I have so many questions. One of them about not remembering yes, which we've already covered. The missionary in Denmark thing, which you cleared up for me. It's probably the Church of Latter Day Saints. Uh, how much did that ticket cost? I want to know how much the ticket cost. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a Motley Crue ticket from '87 that I, that's like I think it's like twelve dollars or under ten bucks. 
Unbelievable. It's Motley Crue and Whitesnake, by the way. Wow. And this, this note from Art got me thinking about drummers in general, right? Because there is this sort of allowance in rock lore and this expectation, really, for drummers to be crazy people. They have to turn it up a notch. It's the, the drummer's job is unofficially a bunch of other things. According to rock mythology, this is from, a, from an article on the music website, MikeMIC.com. According to rock mythology, drummers are the Neanderthals on the scale of musical evolution. They don't understand melody or composition. They're only good for two things, tops, keeping the tempo steady, and coming down hard on the one. Now, this article is taken from back in 2015. And it's actually titled, Science Shows Something Surprising About Drummers' Talents Versus Everybody Else's. And it goes on to mention a few actual scientific studies. They've actually commissioned scientific studies about what's going on in drummers' brains. And there are lots of verifiable facts in this thing to prove the drummers are not idiots, right? Here's another excerpt. Studies out of uh, Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. You might have to help me with that. Uh, have shown that there is a link between the brain structure used to keep time and those used to problem solve. Individuals who are better at tapping out a steady rhythm with a drumstick also perform better on problem solving tests. Think about the floor. Like I've never, did you ever play drums? Uh, no, I no. I can't at all. My brother is a fantastic drummer, uh, but right. I, I've not, yeah. I, I can't. Yeah. I played, I played with super fan Troy, uh, listener of the show. And it was amazing he, you look at the drummer and the drummer knows, oh, yeah, okay, here's, you know, we're about to do this here. Yeah, when you're really in with a drummer and you're playing music with a drummer and you can make that eye contact and they know what to do, it is a special relationship. There's more to this. Researchers also found that drummers had higher levels of white matter in parts of their brain's frontal lobes, which, white matter. which can that? aid in problem solving, planning, and time management, which is not what I typically associate with drummers. <laughs> Man, that guy can keep a beat, and he shows up five minutes early. Um, well, they have to carry. They have to carry all that stuff. <laughs> I, I have empathy. Listen, I straight up went empathy right with the drummer because oh, okay. I remember. Okay. I remember like you either are with him or not. You know, the drummer like you're going to help them carry, yeah. or they're going to do it all themselves, and it's a pain in the ass. Yep, it's yep. a lot of stuff. I've done that a few times. Now I don't think we're breaking any news here. Now, there are stereotypes. We all know drummers who don't fit with these wild assumptions. We're all adult enough to know that you can't pigeonhole a whole group based on something arbitrary, like how good they are at hitting something with a stick. But I bring this up and point this out because I think the more interesting question to ask is, why does this stereotype exist? What events have happened? What people have played? What situations have simmered in the pop cultural conscience to convince us all that there's a little bit of truth to the idea that drummers are mostly insane. And I think when it comes to rock and roll, there are a few big founding fathers for this. You want to give me yours, like your short list? Uh, John Bonham is number one. Uh, yeah, I'd me. put him on there for sure. Oh, uh, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden. Um, like he's like he's hidden. You know, he's got so many drums. Like it's like Spinal Tap. He looks like he's from like uh, like Time Bandits, like that movie. <laughs> like, that's where that's Nico reference. McBrain looks like where he's from. He's he looks like he's from another freaking planet. Couple other names I think we can't forget: Ginger Baker and and then of course Keith Moon. And we've talked about Keith Moon oh, at length on yeah. this show. I mean, let me recommend episode seventeen. That's about Moon's birthday party that got them banned for life from a certain hotel chain. Episode thirty-seven about his death. Oh, hey, also I can't. I only saw it once, but the the 
documentary about Ginger Baker is highly recommended from me. Are you talking about uh, Beware of Mr. Baker from 2012? Yeah, it opens yeah. where it's literally the guy filming it, and 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 Ginger Baker comes come over and he like tries to hit the camera. Yeah. Uh, so do you know the backstory on that? That writer was going. So he's a Rolling Stone writer, and he's going yeah. to to embed basically like live with Ginger Baker for a few weeks in South Africa, because at some point Ginger yeah. Baker just straight up moves to South Africa. And so he ends up shooting this film and the guy had basically been secluded in South Africa for a decade. So he was known for his temper, for his struggles with heroin addiction. He's married four times before beware of Mr. Baker. He does another documentary. Have you ever seen Ginger Baker in Africa? 1971. No. Like, that's literally what it's called. Oh, no, I have not. And tell me all about it, Ginger Baker. So it, it documents Baker's drive by Range Rover from Algeria to Nigeria across Shut the that. Sahara. Shut the front door. <laughs> this is a movie? And when Good. he gets there, so when he gets there, he sets up a recording studio and jams with Fela Kuti. Like, that's the premise oh, of the movie. Oh, that's right. I've heard about that that love connection, but I didn't know where it was from. Oh, that is sick. I got to I gotta check that out. Okay. Man, and I'll, I'll pay to watch that. that I I, it's got to be somewhere. I, did, I didn't look to see where we can find it, but it's got to be somewhere. Now, okay, Ginger Baker, Keith Moon, we marked those guys off. John Bonham, you mentioned him first. We actually haven't really talked about Bonham on the show very much. This is a guy who died at the age of 32 by choking on his own vomit. Yeah, and he, he drank a, uh, you know, I really do like Led Zeppelin. And I spent a lot of time in the pandemic listening to Led Zeppelin bootlegs. It's totally true. But he, I remember reading, I, I didn't, I obviously didn't keep it all in my brain, but he, he had a lot to drink. 40 shots, 40 right. shots of 40% ABV vodka, which yeah. equals almost one and a half liters. It's a drag. It's a drag, um, but that sort of behavior and tragedy sets a mold, right? But he dies in 80, 1980. And the mold of the drummer is crazy was already inked by 1980. So he's he's added to it. He's made it deeper and thicker over the years, I think. And we look back at him, and you, you rated him as number one on your list. But why do I pick 75? Well, it would be the entry of a certain character, or you might say caricature, into the lexicon of pop culture through a family program called The Muppet Show. <laughs> Have you seen the Geico commercial now? With Animal, the Muppet drummer? Oh, no. It and is delightful. It's Now, remember they did the rat, we have rats in the basement, or rats in the attic? It, so this is, we have Animal in the basement. Yeah, and you and my daughter are familiar with the, the this later Muppet movie that came out, and, and I am old enough that the first movie I saw in a movie theater was the original Muppet movie. Yeah, I, th I saw Muppets take Manhattan with my grandmother and my main memory is riding the city bus to the movie theater with my, it was like the first time I'd ever been on a city bus and she didn't drive. That was my fame. The famous thing about my grandmother. She got in a car accident right after she learned to drive and then said never again. And so she is still wonderful and beautiful and still doesn't drive at the age of 93. And, uh, so I remember riding the bus to go see that movie and then falling asleep on the bus on the way back from seeing that movie. So I also, a formative part of my childhood, and I've always loved Animal. But yeah. fun fact about him, do you know what drummer his look, not his skills, but what drummer his look was based on? Huh. Eat drums. Eat drums. 
was going to say that. I was going to. Okay, you're. It's crazy how you get in my notes. So oh, I mean, I mean, dude, I'm I'm all the way there. Who is that? The original animal sketches point to this Grammy Award winning session drummer named Steve Mitchell, and it's worth a Google. If you don't know what this guy looks like, you probably don't because he was sort of a background guy, but he did a bunch of session work and he played with Van Morrison and he did like he was like like the music for the Garfield cartoons or something like I mean, he did all sorts of crazy stuff and he was a friend of Jim Henson's. And so when they created this character, oh my God, (laughs) did you look him up? I highly recommend. I highly recommend everyone. It's it's okay. You can (laughs) open up another tab and if you have to pause it, Google Steve Mitchell drummer. And and just keep listening, or if, or if you do need to come back, come back, because there's there's a there's an inspiration behind Animal, and I didn't know it was a thing. And oh my god, there's a dude that there's a dude that looks like it looks like Animal. It's really <laughs> remarkable. I'm, it's really remarkable. So the uh, Frank Oz performed Animal for the first twenty five years, and he's been on record saying that Animal's character can be summed up in five words: sex. Sleep, food, drums, and pain. And and you've already said this, basically, but long before Danny Rojas was yelling, football is life, Animal was yelling, drums are food. <laughs> Eat drums. <laughs> so there's a clip, uh, and I believe it's in the show notes, of Kermit interviewing Animal. By the way, do you remember when we worked together and one of the morning show personalities at the radio station used to do an impression of me, which was basically the same thing as his Kermit the Frog impression? Kermit the Frog I impression? Cer- I certainly do remember that. You were thinking about it when I started to do that, weren't you? Well, no, I, I knew where you were going. Yeah, absolutely. So, and he would never do it in front of me, which I was always like, dude, if you're going to do an impression of me, let me see it. Uh, so... Hey, I'm just gonna do this. Hey, it's what's up? It's Brian Eckenberg here. I'm just gonna read you. Like, just that's that's he pretty just, good. He just did, he just did you as, as Kermit. Uh, that's pretty good. I don't know it. Like it wasn't there wasn't anything like weird about I'm, it. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that iTunes review. They're like, you know, the info on this show is pretty good, but that guy he sounds like Kermit the Frog. Um, yeah, which which could be really off putting. By the way, in the first Muppet movie, uh, can you picture that? With the band, dude, what a, a great performance by Animal there. I'd, li- I'd like to say that. <laughs> there are a lot of Can good animal performances. That? One thing I wanted to point out is in, there's this clip where Kermit is interviewing him, and he asks him about like his influences, like you would, you know? Uh, listen, I imagine you have a lot of idols. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Buddy Rich. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gene Krupa. Yeah, Krupa, Krupa. Tony Checkers. Tony. He's our new drummer. He begins next week. If you look at interviews and read much about Keith Moon or John Bonham or Animal, uh, a couple of other names, other than the ones we've mentioned, come up very quickly, and those, of course, are Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. I grew up listening to big band music with my best friend, Ben, who you know, who is still my best friend, uh, besides you. And uh, he is a college professor now. He's basically always been a college professor at heart. So we were like 11-year-olds listening to big band music, and he showed me Gene Krupa. When I encountered him in the early 90s, I was fascinated by his look, right? And those pictures were already 50 years old. And if you're not familiar, he played for Benny Goodman in the 30s and 40s, and he was sort of on this mission to make drummers important to the listener. And man, visually, 
if you got to see him, which think about what a tragedy it was for so many people that didn't even get to see him. Yeah. You know, that yeah. didn't weren't seeing him on TV. They were listening to him on the radio. And so to be important to the listener, one thing he did was he, he wanted to make it flashy. So the way he played was flashy. He hunched over his drums. He would chew gum in this vigorous tempo of the beat. He would, you know, his, his black hair would dangle in front of his face and wave back and forth in front of his eyes. He would flail around. And then he would rear back and he would hold both arms in the air. And then he would pound the bass drum with a foot pedal, right? And he would take these drum solos, which wasn't really a thing, you know, at the time. And all you got to do is go listen to Sing, 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 which is a tune by Louis Prima that Goodman and, and his band started playing like in 36. And it arguably comes like sort of what Benny Goodman's known for. And their version is like almost nine minutes long. And this dude is wailing the whole time. He's got a 45-second solo by the four-minute mark. It's that impressive. Uh, but along with his complete power and swagger that he's bringing to the drums, he's a little unhinged. Mid-career, he goes to jail. Did you know this? Oh, I never knew he went to jail, no. Drug charge. Remember what our, our buddy was smoking at the, our, our buddy Art in Utah was smoking at the Iron Butterfly concert? Smoking the reefer. He got 84 days for that. And at one point, he marries... 84 days. 84 days. Man. He marries the same woman twice <laughs> hey, i and mean you never you never know like, classic drummer stuff never never say never you never know near the happen. end of his life his house goes up in flames and it burns big portions of it and he decides not to move he continues to live in it so you can see this sort of eccentricity oh. framework being built right but yeah. but man you know who krupa has nothing on krupa has nothing on buddy rich I know more about Gene Krupa because I listen to a lot of big band music and, and I listen to a lot of Benny Goodman. Well, there's two things about Buddy Rich you need to know. He was one of the best drummers of all time ever. And the yeah. number two thing you need to know is he was a massive dick. He was such a piece <laughs> of man. And he is famous for it. Krupa was idiosyncratic and stylish. Rich was talented and terrible. And there, there's a famous story about Dusty Springfield. Son of a preacher, man, Dusty Springfield, oh, slapping really? Buddy Rich in the face. Like, it, and the reason is basically just because he was an a hole. Uh, this is a guy who had a rivalry with Frank Sinatra because they were both in Tommy Dorsey's band at one point. And the, the reports say that they would just end up hitting each other and rolling around on the ground hitting each other. He was famous for antagonizing people. And he was one of the first guys to get the gotcha thing done with him with secret recording. Do you know about the Buddy Rich tapes? Oh, I've yeah, it's been so long, but I it's in my it's in the back of my brain. This is classic yeah. stuff, man. So there were always rumors that he was the worst. And then in the early 80s. Oh, that's right. There was a now bunch of I and so he's like old in the early 80s. There were a bunch of secret recordings made on tour buses by his piano player. And this guy, like he's in the freaking CIA conceals a compact tape recorder in his clothing okay and, and let me just let me give you a taste of the buddy rich tapes what 
This is the guy who is walking on the. Those are the. Those aren't like people who are harassing him. Those aren't even like unruly fans. Those are the guys on stage with him. He gets off stage and goes and screams. Uh, was Buddy Rich? Was he? Was he drunk or was he hooked on amphetamines? No, he was. A- There's even a time on one of these tapes where he <laughs> threatens to fire a guy for having a beard. Like it's all ridiculous. So yeah. these tapes, though, become the thing of legends. In fact, adding to the lore, it's fairly well documented. And this is why, like, I just want it to be known that on this show, A, I try not to curse very much. And B, I try not to say overtly negative things about people. I, I know I've done better right. about that sometimes than but, others. But- and- but man, you you definitely went. You were punching down on Buddy Rich. But I'm not punching down. Listen, I'm, just, I'm joking. I'm joking. It, I mean, like when I was like, "Wow, Brian's really taking this guy to the carpet." Listen, Jake the Snake Roberts DDT style. It's fairly well documented that Rich asked to listen to these tapes on his deathbed. <gasps> yes. Yes, that's true. So you can say what you want about the guy, and so will I. But they really have had this totally outsized effect on pop culture. For instance, <laughs> on his deathbed. There, I know. I, we should take a moment for that because that's crazy. Barely, I can barely. I need to catch my breath. <laughs> so that's so friggin' weird. Hey Murdoch, I'm about to die. Bring me a copy of that tape where we where we screamed at people and called them names. That's hilarious. <laughs> Uh, Get that tape of where we prank called the gynecologist every day for three weeks. Hey there, tough guy. Okay. There's a link in the show notes of an interview with Jerry Seinfeld. And he explains that for comics, these are like the Holy Grail. And I know almost all of it by heart, along along with uh, a lot of my friends. And there are three lines in the series where that I just took lines from those tapes. One of them is Kenny Banya is following me and he's getting laughs off of me. I, I was going to throw the set. I throw the set, I was going to bomb. And the line was, and then we'll see how he does up there without all the assistance. You're not. That's right. I'm taking a dive. You're throwing the set? I'm laying down. Then we'll see how he does up there without all the assistance. And that was a buddy of his line. He was going to threaten to turn off the microphones off of all the saxophone players. And he said, then we'll see how you do up there without all the assistance. Three separate moments in Seinfeld, the series, where he dropped a Buddy Rich Tapes line into the script as an inside joke to everybody oh, on set. Wow. And it made the episode. At this point, I think we've done some decent diving into the lineage and we've hit on the obvious spots, right? I thought we'd spend the rest of our time connecting a dot to a drummer that sort of sits in between Rich and Krupa and Bottom and Moon and Baker, though he's a contemporary of those guys, and he ends up sort of outplaying and outlasting those guys. This dude's still alive, still playing, still doing way too many interviews. And, and he's sort of, he'll say, we'll get to this, he says he influenced John Bottom, but he also is kind of full of crap, so I'll let you be the judge. He isn't a guy who has high name recognition with your average rock fan, but he was in a lot of rooms. Like, honestly, too many rooms if you talk to him, and sometimes the wrong rooms. Do you know the name, and let me see if you can, how you pronounce it, C-A-R-M-I-N-E, 
Carmen Apiece? Yeah. 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 <laughs> he, he's, he, listen, 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 man. If you want to, if you guys, everybody, Art, anyone listening, want to know what a big dork I am, he, Carmen is super pissed off that the frickin' Go Go's are getting, we're getting in the Rock and Roll Hall. So, you know, he, like, so, so, and, and listen, Carmen has played, he is, he, and like, I didn't know where you were going. It's like, man, he has played with, Working everybody. Yep. Yep. And, and, and like he played with all the bands I listened to when I had a mullet. So I know Car I know him very well. And and so he's a very fun outspoken guy, I guess, right? Oh man. Oh my God. So okay. So first of all, we're we I, I don't even have it in the script, but before we close, we should talk about the dumb crap he's saying to the press in the last like three weeks. One of them being the thing about the go-go's. Other other stuff too. But he <laughs> His name. Let's start there. People don't know how to pronounce his name. So much so that so, so when I'm reading about him, I'm like, I gotta make sure I say his name right. And I and I may not be saying. I mean, it's the way I've been saying well, it. Here's what I found time. out. This is such a thing about people not knowing how to pronounce his name that a guy. I don't understand what this is, but there is a short film on YouTube called "Living on a Prayer," which doesn't really appear to be about Bon Jovi. And there is a whole scene about how you pronounce this guy's name in this movie. Hey, guys, guys, guys. Antoine, come here. That is Carmine Apice. Oh. Hey, wait. I thought it was, like, pronounced Apice or something like that. Technically, if it's the Italian pronunciation, it's Apice. So, yeah, it's... it's I, The acting's not great on this clip, but, I mean, it's worth checking out. Also, in the show notes, lots of stuff to see in the show notes this episode. Uh... But I couldn't believe that that's they actually made a short film <laughs> because people don't know how to pronounce his name. The best I could tell, it's Carmine Apice. I was gonna je- I was gonna guess like Carmen Apice, but no, I think it's Carmine Apice. And it, it does appear that when he is in interviews, that's how he introduces himself. So that's what we will call him. And you you did great cliff notes there about this guy, right? Interesting dude who says a bunch of crazy stuff. And does like like you said, he's played with everybody, and then he sort of has these stories about being in all of the rooms. And just to orient us to the insanity this guy brings to the table, let me read this New York Post headline from 2016. This is when they were covering the fact that he had put out his memoir. Uh, this is the headline: Drummer who slept with 4,500 women witnessed Led Zeppelin's grossest moment. Oh my gosh. So it's, oh, it's like super gross. Like now, Gene Simmons gross and the, and the, that Zeppelin story. Since the early days of this podcast, Mark, I have basically embargoed two rock and roll bedtime stories. I have said we will <laughs> never cover them because they are in such poor taste. <laughs> we, you did, you very much did mention that, that I, we were not going to. And, and so it's, you know. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it. If you, this, a link is in the show notes. I'm really baiting the show notes. The link is in the show notes to this New York Post article, and they go into great detail about this. If you want to go read it, read it. We're not going to talk about it. There's no appropriate way to talk about this. This is where I draw the line. And, but, so, if you know this lore around Led Zepp's grossest moment, this guy, Carmine Apice, claims it happened in his hotel room. Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement. He literally says in his memoir, you know, man, I, like, I would have left, but it was my room. I didn't know where else to go, so I just had to like stick around. So I mentioned this to show you 
not just his craziness, but also his willingness to own it, right? Yeah. And as for the 4,500 women mentioned in that headline, this is from the back end of that article. Apis was married to five different women for much of his groupie-loving existence. Now he's been in a relationship with a New York rock DJ named Leslie Gold, known as Radio Chick, for 13 years. At one point, Gold insisted on figuring out how many people he'd had sex with in his life. Her own total was seven. I'm continuing to read the article. This next sentence is in the article. Thank you, New York Post, for your excellent journalism. Using a spreadsheet... They arrived at the number 4,500 for Carmine. Wow. Yes, he used a spreadsheet. Gene Simmons took Polaroids. That's what he did. Good Lord. So now the obvious question is, what the, who the hell is this guy? Uh, <laughs> he was born in 46, and he does. He, he talks wow. about it in interviews. He grows up listening to Krupa and Buddy Rich, like all these other guys. And he starts drumming on pots and pans when he's a kid. And by the time he's in high school, he's drumming for a living. He actually got trained as a drummer, and he approaches it with business sense, to his credit. Because a lot of stuff we're going to say not to his credit today. This is to his credit. It, it doesn't really line up with the rest of his persona, but he is, he quote, musicians always talk about having to sleep on floors and that kind of thing. I never had to do that. I always had gigs. This business sense reemerges. By 1972, well before his 30th birthday, he has a best-selling drum instruction book called The Realistic Rock Drum Method that's still being updated and sold now. It's sold so many copies, it's possibly the best-selling drumming instructional booklet of all time. So his influence is huge in a rock star sense, but also in a very practical sense. In 1966, he's playing in clubs with this cover band called Thursday's Children. And this guy, Tim Bogart, is there, and he's impressed. He has a band called The Pigeons, and they need a drummer. So the they, Pigeons. They enlist Carmine. In April 67, The Pigeons get a record deal on Atlantic Records. But Atlantic didn't want to sign a band called The Pigeons <laughs> for the reason that you just heard, which is Murdoch's reaction to a band called uh, The Pigeons. Pigeons, yeah. What a terrible name. Ladies and gentlemen, here to rock your face off, it's The Pigeons. <laughs> so the band is playing a gig on Long Island, and they're chatting up this chick who works there. And in the course of the conversation, she mentions that her grandfather, I don't know how this came up, <laughs> but that her grandfather used to call her Vanilla Fudge. And Carmine wow. says, quote, then she looked at us and said, maybe you guys should call yourselves that. You're like white soul music. Uh, so we liked it, and we told our manager, and he liked it, and he told Atlantic, and so we became Vanilla Fudge. What are your thoughts of Vanilla Fudge? Uh, you Keep Me Hanging On uh, is one of my... I love that song. Uh, Vanilla Fudge basically answered the question, what if Deep Purple just covered pop songs? <laughs> like That's basically how I would explain Vanilla Fudge to anyone. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there was a band in the 90s, I think, called Overwhelming Color Fast, and they did a cover which was basically like very much a cover of Vanilla Fudge's oh my cover. God. And then I realized how much I love Vanilla Fudge. You, you know they did a bunch of other covers, right? Like So they did Eleanor oh, yeah. Rigby. Yeah. They did Season of the Witch by Donovan. Like This is literally their thing. Like You see bands doing this now in the streaming era where they 
sort of build a fan base by getting people to listen to them do covers because people will search the song, right? And they see, oh, what's this? And it's a it's a punk band doing a Shawn Mendes song or whatever. Yeah. But they, they were like doing this in the 60s, essentially. Like, we're just going to cover these pop songs, but do it as this sludgy, like, precursor to heavy metal. They don't last very long. Vanilla Fudge breaks up in 70, but before they broke up, they toured on Led Zeppelin's first American tour. They were the opener, yeah. and, and that's when the incident happens that shall not yeah. be spoken of. Yeah, and I remember I remember that now because I can see posters or or like things that had their names on it, and I I thought that was because it's weird when you see, you know, one of those epic monolith bands, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Beatles or or anything, and they're like right at the beginning, and it's like what what's up with that? So Carmine starts another band with this guy, Tim Bogert, who discovered him after they leave Fudge, and it's called Cactus. And then Cactus breaks up, and they start hanging out with this guy, this guitar player who's pretty good, because uh, Bogert plays bass. So they got drums, bass, throw, here's this guitar player, his name's Jeff Beck. Wow. They form this power trio. And every story you hear about Carmine Apiece, when he plays with another artist, pretty quickly devolves into this. Uh, they just sort of fought a lot. And that's what happens with Jeff Beck. And it happens with so many other artists. But this guy is such a good drummer, he can practically get any gig. Through this book, he's actually teaching a new school of drummers. But interpersonally, he's like Animal from the Muppets. <laughs> he's like eating the drums. I love how you get back to Animal. Do, do you remember that it's old true. episode of the show that we called Quiet Riot versus Murder? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. we talked at length about Kelly Garney in that episode. And Kelly Garney is a guy who spent a whole lot of time since the 70s telling stories about the 70s. And, and Carmine Apiece is cut from the same cloth. This guy has so many stories that have him in the room, like I already mentioned, in these key moments. It's sort of hard to believe them all. I'm going to give you some highlights. And some of these are verifiable. First, this is verifiable to your point about him playing with everybody. He joined Rod Stewart's backing band in 77, and he co-wrote Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks. Yeah, 77. So I wonder if he toured on that Footloose and Fancy Free uh, record, which is my favorite Rod Stewart record. Uh, speaking of your favorites, he also played drums on a track on Paul Stanley's solo album. Oh. Other artists he appeared on albums with, Ted Nugent, Sly Stone, Pink Floyd... And, and now the more fun part. <laughs> what? Yeah, in okay. 80, 87, that record. Now, the, the more fun part. Here are a bunch of these more outlandish claims that he has made. All right, and, I'm ready for, I'm, yeah, I'm ready for this. Okay, so, and, and some of these are, are pretty well documented. This one especially. He played in Ozzy Osbourne's band on the Bark at the Moon tour. Mm -hmm. He claims that Sharon Osbourne hates him. And he claims that part of the reason is on that tour, he had a special effects laden drum solo. And he sort of stole the show. I mean, he, him telling it, oh, stole the show from Ozzy. And Sharon wouldn't have it. So this, he claims this happened. He asked if he could sell his own merchandise on the tour. Oh, wow. Yeah, Sharon was not going to be cool with that, even in 83. So get this. They tell him yes. But he claims <laughs> that when he arrives... They have cut his face out of all of his T-shirts. Oh, oh my! Every single one. Holy cow! That is some down and dirty, nasty business. And then he gets fired from the tour. Here, here's another crazy story, which is harder to believe, but I guess it makes sense. So, sometime later, he's, or actually not that much later, he's using a friend's spare room in L.A. 
as sort of like a place to crash when he's in the, when he's in town and it's a place to work from and stuff. And the friend comes home one day and he works the, the friend works for his management company and he goes, "Hey, we're managing this other young artist. He's just moved over here. I'm going to put him in that room that you've been crashing in some. He's got to live there for a little bit. So just heads up." And he goes, "Okay, cool. What's his name?" Uh, Prince. <laughs> so, a piece claims this was during the time that Prince opened for the Stones. Now, side note, I've considered covering the Prince opening for the Stones incident in its own episode, but when the Prince estate reissued 1999, they started an official Prince podcast. And it's pretty awesome because they own everything because it's put on by his estate. So they have all sorts of stuff to show off. In the first episode of that show, now they're doing like, I, I, I looked at it and on the feed, they've done like full deep dives onto like almost every album. But this was like in 2018 or 19 when they started this. And on that very first episode on the feed, this is what they cover. And there's no way I'm going to do it better than Prince's Estate. So we just haven't done that as a rock and roll bedtime story. But it's really good. And again, it's in the show notes. So you can go check it out if you want after you've listened to every episode of rock and roll bedtime stories. But the basics are this. October 81, Prince opens for the Stones. And the Stones crowd hates hates him and throws crap at him this is a quote from carmine quote the stones fans didn't know what to make of the stage gear of stilettos stockings and panties and they booed him off he like this is where the story gets ridiculous to me i was at the house when prince came home crying (laughs) (laughs) no it's not not only did i know the guy i just happened to be at home smoking a bowl or whatever he was doing when prince comes home like he didn't go to the show. Like what? What's it? What? What? Come on, man. Maybe he was surfing, couch surfing on uh, Prince's couch. This guy is like the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. Like he says, he was at every major moment uh, in the seventies and eighties. A few more claims this guy has made. He says he was asked to join both White Snake and Rainbow, but he had to turn them down because of scheduling conflicts and like other bands and stuff he had committed to already. Yeah. He also says. That John Bonham stole his drum fills. Bold stuff, man. Wow. This is Carmine talking. I was with Ozzy Osbourne when we took Motley Crue on their very first tour. Does check out. And I saw the John Bonham stuff being done. This like Tommy. He's talking about Tommy. Like the spin and grab, the cymbals, etc. And I said, wow, dude, that's pretty cool. Where'd you get that? And he goes, man, from John Bonham. And I said, well, you got it from me. And he says... <laughs> Tommy didn't believe me, so after the tour, he came over to my house. And then in this quote, he says, I had this big house in Sherman Oaks. It had like 4,000 square foot house with all the saunas. He came over and I just showed him videos from the Ed Sullivan show on 68. And he said, wow, dude, I can't believe you did that before Bonzo. And, And then he says this. We became buddies. I would go to his house when he was married to Heather Locklear, and we'd watch Gene Krupa videos. Wow, there it is, yeah. man. That- and, and, and we got and we got to Motley Crue, and and talk about drummers making outlandish decisions. Yeah. Somehow, yeah. Heather Locklear wanted to get married to Tommy Lee, and that happened. And I remember thinking it was crazy, and it was. Now, I haven't scheduled in a bunch of time to talk about Tommy. He's an obvious person to put in this conversation, but we've done an episode about Tommy versus Pam that I would suggest you go back to fill in some of those gaps around Tommy. I mean, we could do this a long time. There's a lot of people we could talk about, but I do want to make one more note about Carmine. Did you know Carmine has a brother? 
No, no. Didn't know that at all. He's 11 years younger. His name's Vinny. When he was 16... Yes, yes. You, okay. do, you do know who Vinny is. I promise you do. When he was I, I just, 16... I just didn't put this together that they were... Oh, man. I want to hear this. He and his band, BOMF, met John Lennon at Record Plant Studios. And Lennon liked them and used them as a backing band in several performances, including the final performance before he was shot. Yeah, wow. So Vinny Apice was playing drums for John Lennon for the very last John Lennon performance. Now, I think you know now where we're headed with who Vinny Apice is, but Vinny Apice is more in the Murdoch wheelhouse than even Carmine is. He recorded with Rick Derringer, and then he joined Black Sabbath to support the Heaven and Hell album in 1980. He, he was the guy who replaced Bill Ward when Bill Ward quit the band in the middle of the tour. Yeah, Bill, Bill left uh, so he didn't have to support the, the worst Black Sabbath record ever. But go ahead. Yeah. He was forced to learn the band's songs on stage using written crib notes from each unfamiliar song. A sudden rainstorm made the ink run on Vinny's notes. That is an unbelievable story. According to an interview conducted at uh, NAM in 2012, Vinny stated that at the end of the show, during the bows, he tossed the notebook into the crowd. <laughs> unbelievable. In late 1982, he leaves Black Sabbath, along with Roddy James Dio, and they yeah. form the band Dio. Dio. Yeah, yeah, and and the 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 Dio records with Sabbath, I thought were. You know, originally they were okay, you know, but I, when, when I went back to listen to them, I found some tracks that I that I really liked. And then I, I've seen Dio, man. My wife wanted to murder me because uh, after my my daughter was born, I was like going to put stuff in the baby book. And like the day that my daughter was born, Ronnie James Dio died. And I was going to put like <laughs> Ronnie James Dio, R.I.P. She was like, what I the think hell are you? Now knowing your daughter is a, what, 12 year old, I think that she would appreciate that. Yeah, if we listened to like, just a rainbow in the dark. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so Dio, so they formed Dio. Well, you I know. mean, they later, you know, the Apice Brothers eventually tour together um, and do a thing like in the last 10 or 15 years that's like them going out with drum sets and drumming on stage together and all sorts of stuff. good place to land here are drummer jokes i feel Uh, like it's the proper way to punctuate this episode do you have a good drummer joke no because i will go back to my original like statement my mantra is that i have empathy for the drummers and i'm not gonna (laughs) hit so if you would like to take shots at drummers go ahead i'm not taking shots at drummers i love drummers tell the Tell the jokes. I love drummers. Troy, I love you. Joel, I love you. My brother is a drummer. He's amazing. I love drummers. I think this idea of the drummer being insane or being hard to deal with or whatever is funny. And I think drummer jokes are funny. But let's be honest. Drummer jokes are just musician jokes where somebody has changed bass player or lead singer or whatever to drummer with a few exceptions. One of them that is very clearly about a drummer is how do you know a drummer's knocking on your door? 
the knot the knot keeps changing time signatures. <laughs> If you've got a drummer joke, I'd like to hear it. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Remember our Patreon page, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. I think these jokes were worth five bucks, five bucks a month. Uh, there are tons of cool stuff you can get though. If you want the, if you want the full notes and script and all this, all the research and stuff that we do per episode, you can, uh, give us a little scratch for that. We'll send it to you. We'll do zooms with you. Uh, you know, those sorts of things. Um, check it out. Patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. And what should people keep doing? Until we get together again next time, Murdoch. Keep telling stories, people. You keep me hanging on. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved. Vanilla fudge. Can you imagine? I, for some reason, the funniest part of this whole episode is that it, some woman was like, "My grandma, my grandpa used to call me vanilla fudge." I know. It's like <laughs> I got married to my cousin Cletus, and they call me vanilla fudge. <laughs>